Chapter Seven of The Flint Heart by Eden Philpotts. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Seven De Quincey. Of course, you always skip scenery in books, and so do many other people older than you are who ought to know better. And many people skip scenery in life also, and never want to look at it, and would rather be shopping or walking down a street than watching the most beautiful sunset, or beholding mountains or rivers, or the wonder of the sea. But you'll have to read these few words about the Pixies' Holt, and if you miss one of them the Pixies will be much annoyed with you, because they think very highly of the entrance to their domain, and have spent much time and trouble in making it what it is. Their haunt lies hidden among great trees, where stands a cluster of rocks all covered with moss and lichens and tufts of grass. The grasses come and go according to the seasons, so that in summer the great rocks have green hair, and in autumn their hair turns yellow, and in winter it fades and disappears under the razor of the east wind, so that the rocks are bald until the grasses sprout in spring. It was spring when Charles went to the Holt, hoping to see a pixie, and he found a little dingle of the woods knee-deep in bluebells, with the great green-haired rocks towering up above them. The bluebells nodded and swayed and scented the air to the very entrance of the cave among the boulders where fairies were believed to dwell. You went in between two great masses of stone, richly decorated with dark moss, and first you came to a front hall, so big that a couple of foxes could easily dance upright there, and then you came to an inner chamber, only large enough to hold one little child, and then you came to a huge, mysterious, pitch-black hole, and what was beyond that none knew exactly but that it was the high road into an important pixie city few sensible people pretended to doubt. Charles sat down among the bluebells, and waited very patiently indeed, and his patience was rewarded, for he saw some exceedingly curious things that are only seen by patient people sitting quite still in woods. I cannot, however, stop to talk about the squirrels and humble-bees and birds and other busy folk, because many people, far cleverer and patienter than I am, have written whole fat books about them. All I must do is to tell how Charles saw a pixie, and who it was, and what he talked about. A brown thing emerged from the main entrance of the rocks and first Charles thought it was a weasel, and then he thought it was a stoat. But it happened to be neither of these beasts, as Charles soon saw, for it stood on its hind legs, and stretched its little arms, and then walked forward six paces, and then stood still again. Its countenance was old, its cheeks were thin, and its forehead was larger than the whole of the rest of its face. It had grey whiskers and a sharp nose, and a sort of hood of dead fern colour ending in a point which hung down over one ear. It wore a long cloak, which nearly reached the ground, 
but was belted at the waist. Under its arm was a little book, far, far smaller than the tiniest tiny book that was ever offered for sale in one of those splendid book catalogues that kind booksellers often send to me. The pixie stood on tiptoe and smelt a bluebell. Then he sniffed the air, like a little mouse that has just come out of its hole to seek for adventures. And then he sat down on the blade of a woodrush, sighed, put on a tiny pair of double glasses, and opened his tiny book. Charles thought that he had better speak before the pixie began to read and got interested, because he loved books himself and knew how hard it is to leave them when you have once started. So he said, If you please, sir, may I talk to you? The pixie looked up, as we look up into the sky when it thunders. He did not answer immediately, but took a wee telescope out of his cloak and attentively examined Charles, who towered above him. You are a human boy, I see, he said at last. His voice was thin and sharp, like the sound made by the wings of some flies when they hang in the air. But he spoke quite distinctly, and Charles heard him very well. Yes, he answered, I'm twelve, and I have a good many brothers and sisters, and my name is Charles. Any relation of the great Charles? inquired the fairy. Do you mean King Charles? No, answered the pixie, I do not. I mean Charles Dickens. For practical purposes, in the history of this country, there is only one Charles. I'm afraid I'm not, said the visitor. I never heard of him. So much the worse for you, answered the pixie. Then he began to read his book again. Charles found himself on equal terms with the little fairy man. The question is if I may have a few words on a sad subject," said Charles. The pixie shut his books. There is only one sad subject, he said, and I am always quite ready to discuss it. But let me first reduce you to a more convenient size. Have no fear. When our talk is at an end, I will restore you to your present absurd dimensions. Charles was a good deal puzzled at this speech but he felt no fear. The pixie took a pencil from his pocket and made a little diagram on Charles' boot. Then he spoke a magic word, and in an instant Charles found himself on equal terms with the little ferryman. Another strange thing also happened, for he now saw that the wild wood and the bluebells and the great masses of rock were in reality not wild at all. From his present height of three inches and a quarter, he perceived that the bluebells were growing in stately and regular avenues, with walks and sidewalks between them, that the entrance to the cave was no rough hole between two lumps of rocks, but a magnificent and beautiful gateway of glittering granite, covered with wonderful decorations in gray and black. All was thought out and carefully planned, even to the spider's web that held a dead leaf above the entrance, as though it had been a flag at the gate of a city. "'Recline here,' said the pixie, 
and we will discuss the saddest subject in the world. I may tell you that my name is De Quincey." Indeed, said Charles. Yes, answered the fairy. The original great De Quincey, as you may or may not know, was a learned Theban who wrote books, the most wonderful books in my opinion. So when the time came for me to choose a name, I called myself De Quincey. Do fairies choose their own names? asked Charles. Certainly. Why not? At twenty-one years of age we are called upon to give ourselves a name. The great name of De Quincey was not appropriated in Fairyland, so I took it. And this brings me naturally to the saddest subject in the world. I refer to the music of English prose. It has gone. We have lost it. The music of prose is a thing of the past. He took out his handkerchief and was evidently going to cry. Don't cry, explain, said Charles. I don't know what you mean by the music of prose. Then read Sir Thomas Brown and Milton and De Quincey and Lander and Ruskin, said the fairy. Walter Lander, let me tell you, is an immortal banner on the topmost turret and battlement of our glorious mother tongue. Dear me, said Charles, how beautifully you talk. I do wish I understood these things. I always talk like that when I get excited, answered De Quincey. Nobody can ever say that I do not sustain the charms and cadences of the language. If I ask for another cup of tea at breakfast, it is done like an artist. But I am not appreciated. Who cares for the music of English prose nowadays? Nobody. Nobody. And that is the saddest thing, in fact, the only really sad thing in the world. Was Shakespeare anybody much? asked Charles. He had not read many books, but once on a time some people lodged at Merripit in the summer, a reading party of young men from Oxford, and one of them had left behind a copy of A Midsummer's Night's Dream. "'Take off your hat when you mention that name,' ordered the fairy, and Charles did so. "'Remember that when anybody speaks of Shakespeare, you uncover your head,' repeated De Quincey. And Charles saw that he had taken off his brown cowl, and was quite bald under it. "'The same remark applies to Milton,' he added, "'and as to Shakespeare being any good, he is not merely some good, but all good.' the most superlative, supreme, transcendent, and paramount artist this world has known. I speak as a poet myself. "'Have you read his funny book about the pixies?' asked Charles. "'Before you were born or thought of,' answered De Quincey. "'He paid Fairyland a visit in order to write it. "'That was before my time, I grieve to say, "'but vivid traditions exist amongst us.' Shakespeare has been in Fairyland more than once. But we are forgetting the music of English prose. The loss, the heartbreaking loss. His lip went down, and he drew out his pocket-handkerchief once more. Don't interrupt me again, he said to Charles, because I will cry. It is a case for many and bitter tears. 
he wept, and Charles noticed that each drop was like a little seed pearl. They rolled down on either side of the fairy's nose and pattered and hopped on the ground as though they had been hail, but unlike hail they did not melt. Charles was much interested. Excuse me, he said, but might I have some of those? Some of what? asked the fairy. The worst part of his weeping was over, and he began to give long gasps and dry his eyes. Some of those beautiful tears, said Charles. Tears, idle tears, I know not what ye mean, quoted de Quincey. All the same, he added, I know what ye mean. Yes, you may have them, but they will be of little use to you. The tears of fairies are the seed of the flower Euphrasy, known to you as Eyebright. Of course, said Charles, it grows all over the moor. So these fond drops, said the fairy, and Euphrasy will spring up. Sometimes it is white, and sometimes it is purple. Experiment has proved that my tears always come up purple. I may mention that Milton refers to the herb in Paradise Lost. Neither spoke for a long time after that. Then Charles, who had a kind heart and liked to talk of things that he knew interested people, asked the pixie what his book was, because he thought it would please De Quincey to talk about it. The work I am perusing happens to be a dictionary, answered the fairy. There is much pleasure and profit to be won from the pages of a dictionary. I have read every letter of the alphabet and made a study of each, all but Z. You may have observed that I never use any word beginning with that letter. The reason is that I have not yet studied it. I know two words beginning with Z, declared Charles. You surprise me, answered the fairy. I should not have expected that. What are they? Zebra and Zany, answered Charles. Thank you. The zebra I have met with in works on natural history, replied De Quincey, but I cannot say that the word Zany is familiar to me. What do you mean by it? A chap who is a bit soft in his wits, who has got a bee in his bonnet. Capital, said the other. I'm tired of calling the fairies fools. Now I can call them zanies instead. It will make a change. Surely no fairies are fools, asked Charles with great surprise. I thought they were all as sharp as needles. Far from it. In fact, no more sharp as a rule than anybody else. We have just as many fools among us as you have, or the birds have, or the beasts have. Society of all ranks consists mostly of fools. We people with brains, I include you, because you know two words beginning with Z, we clever people, I say, have to think for the poor stupids who can't think for themselves. And now, said Charles, I'll tell you what I have come about. It was very lucky that I met such a wonderful and clever pixie, for if most of them are thick-headed, of course they couldn't have helped me. He then told De Quincey about his father, and how he had changed. He also mentioned the meeting, 
and the resolve that everybody had come to at it. And then, after we'd decided upon a beautiful present for my father to get him back into a good temper, explained Charles, the question was, what should it be? And my sister Unity thought that I should come and ask the Pixies. And here I am. De Quincey thought for a few moments. He had not the slightest idea what sort of present the children should get for Billy Jago, but he pretended he knew all about it. The problem is not difficult of solution, he said. Indeed, I could have given you the answer in an instant. Many far more profound cases than this have come under my notice, and I have never had anybody find fault with my decisions. But it happens that on the night of Tuesday next, the Zagabog, a Z, by the way, visits us. The court is entertaining him at a banquet, and we shall have a very brilliant evening, with plenty of good music and some recitations and dancing, and a dinner of thirty-eight courses, embracing ices and the best of wines. Very interesting indeed, said Charles, but I'm afraid it won't help me. It may or it may not, answered de Quincey. That rests with you. The Zagabob, of course, knows everything. I suppose you were aware of that? I never heard of him, confessed Charles. And never heard of his agent in advance, the Snick? Never, said Charles. Then I withdraw what I said about you being a clever person, declared the fairy. I'm very sorry, answered Charles humbly, but it was no good pretending I did if I didn't. Not a bit, admitted the other. The Zagabog is easily the best, most brilliant, and wisest creature in the universe. What he doesn't know doesn't matter. Now I will tell you what I can do. Our leading statesmen, philosophers, and men of letters have each received permission to bring one guest to the banquet. You may come as my guest, and I have little or no doubt that the Zagabog, if I make a favor of it with the Snick, will answer your question. This is very kind, I'm sure, and I don't know how to thank you, dear Mr. De Quincey, said Charles. You may have it in your power to do me a service on some future occasion, said the fairy. It is not probable, because we move in very different walks of life, but the world is full of possibilities, as you will find when you grow older and more intelligent. We shall expect you, then, at 8.15 for 8.30. Be punctual, for the king is the soul of punctuality. It is his only strong point between ourselves. I will be there but it seems almost too much to have dinner with the king and the Zagabog and the Snick and you," said Charles. It is dazzling, no doubt, and a great experience for a human boy," admitted de Quincey. You must not, of course, expect to be the guest of the evening," he added. The Zagabog is the lion of the occasion. He has not visited us since 1704 the year of the Battle of Blenheim, in the reign of Queen Anne. You will come merely as my friend, but I may tell you that any friend of mine will have a certain amount of attention paid him. 
"I hope not," said Charles. "I only want just to sit in a corner and see it all. Or I might help with the dishes." De Quincey was much annoyed at this. "You must come in the spirit of a guest, not in the spirit of a footman," he said. "You must be as grand and haughty as you know how out of compliment to me. I need hardly say that we dress for dinner." "Of course," said Charles. "So do I." "Indeed!" exclaimed De Quincey. "Forgive me for the remark, but I should hardly have expected that you did." "Always," said Charles, "and also for breakfast and supper." "I must make a note of that," declared De Quincey, "because it is strong support of one of my most cherished theories. I have always held that to dress for dinner is a pure convention." Why dress for dinner if you don't dress for breakfast? Why, indeed," said Charles. "There is no explanation," answered De Quincey, "and I hope during the course of the banquet that you will take occasion to mention pretty loudly how you always dress for breakfast." "Certainly, if you wish it," said Charles. "I wonder you don't." "I thank you," answered De Quincey. It will show that you possess the priceless gift of originality, and may add to your importance. Remember that when you arrive here, you wait until my secretary appears. I shall be too busy to come myself, for I shall be putting the finishing touches to the ode. But my secretary will be ready to reduce you to a reasonable size, and after that he will conduct you into the entrance hall. Charles collected De Quincey's tears in a bluebell. Then the fairy bowed and wished him good day, and good afternoon to you, sir, and thank you very much indeed for all your kindness," said Charles. The next moment De Quincey had touched his boot and said a magic word, whereupon Charles shot up to his full height of five feet one inch. It felt quite dangerous. To be so terrifically large again, and he found that to his human eyes the fairy's tears looked like finest dust. So when he got home, he sowed them in the garden and stuck a label over them and wrote on it, "Mr. De Quincey's tears to turn into eyebright." Then he called another meeting and told everybody all about the things that he had seen and heard. End of Chapter Seven.